This episode of the Third Sector Podcast is sponsored by Ansvar. Ansvar protects more than 17,000 charities, big and small, across the UK. Their work with key organisations and charity bodies, as well as being owned by a charity themselves, means an unparalleled level of expertise across a wide range of topics, from governance to fundraising. Ask your insurance broker today for a quote for your charity. Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Featured Analysis Writer. And I'm Emily Burt, Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quickfire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this is it, our final episode of the calendar year. 2021 has delivered four magazines uh, in the region of 50 of these podcast episodes and, as we're about to hear, a significant quantity of news stories. So, for a festive retrospective, we are now being joined by our colleagues, news editor Andy Ricketts and senior reporter Stephen Delahunty, to reflect and to chat about the interesting or unusual goings-on that we saw in 2021. Hi Andy, hi Stephen, how are you doing? Hello, hello, it is very good to be joining this almost award-winning podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, yeah. that was something of a neg. Uh, <laughs> um, so close. We were, I, I mean, I should maybe contextualise that for people who don't know uh, what I'm talking about. Uh, in the internal Haymarket Awards, the company that Third Sector is part of, uh, the Third Sector podcast got a highly commended in the uh, content category. So it was up against some very stiff competition and not other podcasts. It was the only podcast that was nominated. So well done, chaps, I should say. Thank you very much. Everyone's a winner to me. <laughs> and I am doing fine. And um, we'll just start with the congratulations because I don't think it needs any more than that. <laughs> <laughs> so as has become tradition, we've brought at least one bottle of Baileys to this recording. Um, although we are, of course, all recording from home separately, so we won't be sharing. Uh, this is all mine, chaps. Can't have any. It's Rebecca's drinking the Baileys all by herself. <laughs> <laughs> it's Emily's idea and somehow, somehow I'm the only one that's followed through on it. It's very in coffee. It's very classy. It doesn't feel like, I don't know about everyone else on the call, but I don't necessarily feel that Christmassy yet. Um, it's been a bit of a mixed entrance to the festive season, I think, for all of us in this country. Yeah, I think I, I'm compensating but for the dread that I'm feeling by being aggressively Christmassy about everything. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when does Christmas start for you guys? Is there like a, a tradition or a thing you do every year where you're like, this is this is the beginning of Christmas, this is when it happens? Well, um, not normally, but I did do a Christmas lateral flow test this morning. <laughs> I feel like for, <laughs> for the last fortnight, oh, all of my lateral flows have become Christmas lateral flows. Um, so that, I think, might be a Christmas tradition for me for several years. Who knows how long this will Will go on and also the the self-imposed christmas isolation uh is going on not because <laughs> i have the omicron variant but just because i'm trying to avoid it so it's i think the pre-christmas run-up is going to start being established as like that 10-day window where you you know if you can avoid getting covid for that 10 days then you get to have christmas so I think you could do the 12 days of Christmas and make the Omicron variant work in that. I'm not going to do it for you because nobody wants me to sing on mic. Um, that is my Christmas gift to you, the listeners, is not having to listen to that. But I think you could make that work in my head. Last year, you know, thinking about isolation, I was in the car driving back up north as the government announced that was technically illegal. <laughs> <laughs> you obviously had Chris Rea on the radio, presumably. Yeah, yeah. It was between Chris Rea and government <laughs> announcement. <laughs> That's a very mixed bag. 
Yeah, yeah. It was a long, <laughs> a long journey up. So I'm just going to ignore government announcements until I make it up north this year, and then I know I'm, I'm safe. And, and luckily for you, Stephen, we have now established that the Met Police don't actually investigate retrospective crimes. So even if you were breaking the rules halfway through your drive, you're totally fine. Not a bother. <laughs> Dumped three bodies on the way halfway up the M1. <laughs> that's fine. Not a problem. <laughs> For the absence of doubt, uh, that's not true. I think Rebecca's exaggerating for comedic effect there. I just want to be very clear on that one. (laughs) Merry Christmas to everyone breaking the wall this Christmas. (laughs) Andy, what about you? Any Christmas traditions? Any new Christmas traditions? Uh, Well, I mean, it kind of always feels like Christmas doesn't really start for me until I finish work, which is usually Christmas Eve. Uh, Although this year... uh, our benevolent employers are giving us an additional day. So we're kind of finishing all of it earlier this year, which is going to be, uh, well, a real treat and a kind of quite a change. But yeah, I, I, I'm not really one for massively investing in things in the future. So I think probably it will be when when I finally finish and think, oh, now it's Christmas, that I can actually think that the festivities might start to begin. Lovely and practical. But we obviously have a few working days left before we can all go on holiday. And uh, I have to say, you know, this this year has been a real year for the Third Sector team. Rebecca did some quick math for us before this podcast episode began and worked out that uh, editorially, we tend to average around four news stories a day on a normal working day for our website. Um, And currently, so far, we have published a total of 921 news stories about the charity sector this year. So that works out in the region of four per day. The vast majority of those will have been put together by Andy and by Stephen. So well done to both of you. But we've also had contributions from more or less everyone. And I have to say, it has not been fluffy news content this year. There has been a lot happening. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Rebecca, who is now going to attempt to give us a quick summary of news from 2021. Best of luck to you, Rebecca. On your marks, get set, go. Right, so this is not necessarily in chronological order, but roughly. So starting in January, Carl Wilding stepped down as Chief Executive of the National Council for Voluntary Organisations. The London Marathon agreed to overhaul its controversial ballot system. A leaked NCVO EDI report found discrimination and oppression at all levels of the organisation, sparking hashtag not just NCVO with similar complaints. We've since heard complaints about discrimination, bullying and racism and multiple other charities, including, but not limited to, the Vegan Society, UNICEF UK, the National Lottery Community Fund, Amnesty International and more. We found out the charity commission would be taking no regulatory action against the kids company trustees captain tom moore died and we had revelations that the ceo of relief international had passed funding to an armed terrorist group oh and the culture secretary summoned culture and heritage charities to a meeting to tell them to be nice about british history as part of that there's been ongoing rows with the national trust about whether they should be allowed to mention that empire happened the charity commission found that the national trust had not breached charity law by doing so there was a row over the handling of sexual assault allegations at the Chartered institute of fundraising which erupted in march coincided with the announcement of the departure of the chief executive, Peter Lewis, and that debate has rumbled on through the year. There have been claims of bullying, fraud and governance concerns at the British Psychological Society. The former actor, Lawrence Fox, defamed charity chief executive Simon Blake, and we have the return of public fundraising, live events and the reopening of charity shops. The overseas aid budget was cut from 0.7% of gross national income to 0.5%. Oxfam was banned from bidding for government aid less than a month after its right to bid was reinstated following the 2018 safeguarding scandal. We've also had painting 
paintings stolen by the Nazis, which raised money for charity, the RNLI being repeatedly attacked for rescuing drowning refugees and coming out swinging, and three months of strike action at the homelessness charity St Mungo's. Charities including the WWF were targeted by Extinction Rebellion protests. The chief executive of the Small Charities Coalition, Rita Charter, stepped down, the fundraising platform Virgin Money Giving shut down, and the government suggested a post-Brexit overhaul of GDPR. On the international stage, the earthquake in Haiti and the withdrawal from Afghanistan had an impact on the work charities were already doing and increased demand for their services. We've got a new culture secretary, Nadine Dorries, and then after an extended wait, a new charities minister, Nigel Huddleston, we also did eventually get a new charity commission chair in the shape of Martin Thomas. So all of that has happened this year, and it doesn't include a huge number of stories about the impact of the pandemic, the continuing rise in need, the incredible work charities have done to meet that need alongside falls in charitable income, ongoing concerns about funding, huge numbers of job losses and concerns about staff welfare and burnout. It's been a year. (laughs) Well done, Rebecca. Rebecca, I think you could do that on stage as a spoken word poem. <laughs> it sounds it's it's like it's an epic. It's like the Iliad. I think. <laughs> you know, it's, it's basically on that kind of uh, a level. The ballad of the voluntary sector. Yeah, a lot has happened this year. It's um, it's that's if anybody feels like it's been an intense year, that might be why. Absolutely, and that's even setting aside all of the pandemic stuff that everybody has been dealing with on an individual person to person basis. Um, so. You've just given us, uh, I would say, Rebecca, a fairly extensive list of things that have happened in 2021. So what we'll do now is we'll dig a little deeper into some of those stories from the past year. We're each going to pick two stories, one major event that has been the story of the year for us, and then one slightly lighter, more fun story that we have particularly enjoyed working on. So who better to start than our news editor, Andy? You are, you know, the bastion of news uh, in in this organisation. So Andy, what has been, what's been your story of 2021? Well, yeah, I mean, my story of the year is a very serious one in terms of uh, the highlighting the bullying and harassment that was going on at the National Council for Voluntary Organisations in February Third Sector exclusively revealed the contents of a shocking internal report that laid bare the extent of bullying and harassment that had been taking place at the organisation. The report, which was compiled in 2020 by external consultants, found evidence of bullying and harassment on the basis of race, gender, sexual orientation and disability happening with impunity at all levels of the organisation leaving members of minority groups there feeling unsafe at work. It also uncovered overt and covert oppression, favouritism and institutional gaslighting of junior members of staff. Third Sector saw the report just a week after Carl Wilding had stepped down as chief executive after 18 months in the role, having been at the organisation for 23 years in all. The NCVO said at the time that the court had not contributed to his resignation. Although a series of blogs published by the NCVO in August 2020 had acknowledged that EDI work by the organisation had highlighted mistakes and went as far as to admit, among other things, that the NCVO was a structurally racist organisation, it was the first time the full extent of the criticisms in the report had been laid bare. The coverage led to an outpouring of people taking to social media to share similar experiences in the voluntary sector using the hashtag NotJustNCVO 
highlighting numerous issues around things such as the use of non-disclosure agreements and so on. Later in the year, the NCVO said in September a number of complaints relating to allegations of harassment, victimisation, race discrimination and safety issues at the organisation had been upheld. It confirmed 10 complaints had been investigated but declined to confirm the identity of the perpetrators or say how many complaints had been upheld. This was to protect the identity of those involved in the investigations, the NCVO said. I mean, so for me, that's been a a huge story of the year. And, you know, it really kind of set the tone, really, just in terms of all the other stuff that that followed in terms of people, as Rebecca mentioned in her roundup earlier, um, uncovering similar sort of allegations at other organisations in the voluntary sector. And it it felt like a real kind of moment of reckoning and particularly for an organisation such as the NCVO, you know, obviously it's fairly easy for us to kind of, for people in the sector, maybe to put these organisations on a bit of a pedestal and think they're kind of um, setting an example for um, behaviour within their organisations. But obviously it shows that they're not immune to these kind of things going on. So it was, it was a shocking moment and uh, an important uh, milestone I think uh, of of 2021. Absolutely and, and it started so early in the year I remember we were barely back from um, well as you say it was February so it was right at the beginning of 2021 this came out and you know I feel like it's been slowly uh, unfolding and we've been seeing the occasional follow-up ever since. Um, Rebecca I know that you were the person who kind of covered this story initially um so you may well have more thoughts on it but I think something uh that I I think is the case now is uh, we had a blog from Colette Phillip who is uh the owner of Brand by Me um which is a consultancy and she wrote a blog for us in October which said you know the the important thing is going to be what they choose to do next um, and she talked about the importance that, you know, publicly acknowledging the harm caused will play in that recovery and making those steps towards kind of open learning and, and building a better culture in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, I, I, I do think like you've both said it kind of because it happened so early in the year as well. I had to check that it was this year almost because it just has dominated the year so much. It's been in my thinking for so long that I was like, wait, has that only been a year? Um but yeah, it, it, it's it, it has sort of sparked so many other discussions within the sector about what the sector as a whole needs to do, about what individual organisations need to do, and what some of the huge issues are there. I kind of had the sensation of like a, a dam bursting, and there, there've been a lot of these discussions that have been going on for so long quietly. People have been having these struggles quietly, you know, amongst themselves, amongst their, with their friends, you know, with themselves in their own offices, in their own environments and, and, and sort of having it come out onto the public stage. Yeah, th- there was this sensation of just everything sort of splurging out. And just when I first um, saw some of the contents of this report and I sort of, you know, sent what I found on to you guys, there was just there was just like a little kind of Google chat between the three of us of just kind of people expressing absolute shock as they were reading further and further down and reading the different points that were coming out of this incredible document. Like, I've never read anything like it. Uh, and I think that was kind of being mirrored back at me by you guys. Um, yeah, which was, uh, it, it was really quite something. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, a necessary conversation has has started in the sector. And, and as Emily says, will continue to go on. It's what happens now that is as important. And it's certainly true to say that the, the kind of rebuilding job at the NCBO continues. Um, I mean, they are recruiting now for a new chief executive. And, uh, Sarah Vibert's been in the interim role and um, they have a new chair in the form of Priya Singh. So 
you know, that work continues to kind of rebuild the reputation of the organisation, I think, in the meantime. So, Emily, what's been your top story of the year? This was a really tricky one for me because I decided I had to choose one from the magazine. And I love everything that goes into the magazines <laughs> without exception. There is no bad piece of content that has been in our print run this year she says, from her very unbiased position. Um, she loves us all equally, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it was very tricky to choose, but I have to go with um, one of our magazine features, which was written by uh, Stephen. And this was a case study that we published in the spring issue of the magazine, which told the extraordinary story of the vaccine drive from a charitable perspective. It spanned everything from the medical research organisations that were testing the vaccine and trying to trial solutions for COVID-19, clinical solutions for it, uh, to the army of volunteers that supported the National Health Service in jabbing the public and building that public immunity. Uh, and I love this because it really had a bit of everything and rereading it yesterday reminded me again that we so often miss the extraordinary breadth of work that the sector really does. Um, so in this feature, we heard from a clinical science team from Cancer Research UK who had been working on the trials of a drug called Camastat, and that prevented the severe symptoms of coronavirus infections, um, something that served the wider public, but also was really meaningful to the charity's cause area because they work with so many people who would have been extremely clinically vulnerable to COVID-19. Um, there was innovation in this story. Uh, Stephen spoke to another cancer research employee who took a 3D printer home from his laboratory and put it in his living room and used it to print face shields for clinical staff who were working on the front line. And then once those vaccines had been developed and approved, which, you know, it's extraordinary to think that we only had Pfizer and AstraZeneca and Moderna coming out in January, February this year. Once those vaccines had been approved and they'd been developed, then we hit the race to administer them. And once again, you saw charities coming through with organisations like the Francis Crick Institute lending their physical spaces to be turned into vaccination hubs, along with museums, cathedrals and sporting centres. And a lot of staff who worked full time at these organisations, but maybe were furloughed um, during the pandemic, retraining as vaccine volunteers so they could administer doses on the front line of that rollout. And I think my favourite thing about this story was that it was absolutely jam packed full of the human stories. Uh, and it really served as a reminder of the ways that the pandemic has individually affected all of our lives. So uh, one person that Stephen spoke to worked on the Crick's education team and had retrained as a volunteer vaccinator. And she said that the experience of doing that helped her to appreciate the miracle in the mundane. And she said, after living through this pandemic, one thing I can control is putting a little bit more kindness out into the world. April feels like an absolute lifetime ago now, but, you know, rereading this piece feels especially poignant at the moment because just earlier this week I was watching the news and seeing St John Ambulance again preparing to mobilise thousands of volunteers that it had trained to join the booster rollout and bring us through, you know, what is no doubt going to be a very difficult winter. So it's, um, it's one of those stories that just feels like it, it had the essence of 2021 right in there. Stephen, did you enjoy writing it? Yeah, I was just going to say, I saw um, the news about St. John Ambulance and I was hoping I wouldn't have to write a follow-up to this story, but it seems like we might need another one in the new year, which <laughs> is, is not great. But I think, yeah, like you say, it was it was the the human stories and, and you know, the people I spoke to, the, the people doing the vaccinations, the volunteers and the people going to get vaccinated. 
there was, you know, everyone had a shared, you know, people had very personal experiences of the pandemic, but a lot of them were shared in terms of, you know, their grief or their relief or something else. And, you know, that came across through everyone I spoke to. And there was someone in the team who who'd worked with Liam Neeson or worked on film sets with Liam Neeson and was now working for St John Ambulance doing doses. There was just, there was so much going on with it. Well worth a read, I would say. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, absolutely. It was such a gorgeous piece and just, yeah, a kind of, a, like you said, a reminder of everything the charity sector does. It turns up when it's needed. It turns up when, when it shows up for work and gets stuff done. And that has been amazing in the last couple of years. And I think that's been, like you say, kind of easy to forget because we've all been panicking about money, about staff, about, you know, all of the practicalities of it um, and, and making that happen as we rightly should be. But, you know, remembering what it does is is so important as well. Lovely stuff. All right, Stephen, we'll turn to you next. So what is your favourite story of the year been? Um, I think mine has to be the kids' company trial, just because it felt like I spent all my time there at one point. <laughs> that was you yeah. last Christmas. That was your festive your festive <laughs> yeah, season that's... was in court last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was in court or in lockdown, so that was not an ideal way to spend it. Actually, wasn't that? <laughs> um, but yeah, so you know, I mean, I attended about a dozen days of the ten week trial as it progressed which was around five years after the charity's very high-profile collapse. You know, the case reunited lots of conversations in the sector about the role of trustees in a charity's governance and where ultimate responsibility for a charity's sustainability and solvency lies. The official receiver, acting on behalf of the government, was looking to disqualify former kids' company chief executive Camilla batman gellidge and seven former trustees of the charity, including Alan Yentob, the former creative director at the BBC, for up to six years. The case, in part, was that the trustees ran an unsustainable business model and should have been able to see that the charity was heading for a financial meltdown. The official receiver also argued that Batman Gellidge was a de facto director at the charity by virtue of her position as chief executive. Batman Gellidge and the former trustees roundly rejected the accusations and said the periods of disqualification being short were extreme, unsupported and unfairly presented. Part of the defence's case was that some of the stories relating to the charity's expenditure were salacious and designed to create hysteria. It was also argued that the court should get rid of about a third of the documentation put forward by the official receiver as its only use was to give the media a feeding frenzy. Despite the potential feeding frenzy, in February this year all of the disqualification proceedings were dismissed. The court even found that the charity might have survived if what turned out to be unfounded claims of abuse involving service users had not been made. It also found that while aspects of the charity's operating model were high risk, it was not unsustainable in principle. After the proceedings came to an end, we discovered that the trial cost at least £8 million in around June this year, which is considerably more than the estimated £400,000 cost. One of the law firms that have represented some of the trustees described the case as having been brought on flimsy grounds, wasting millions of pounds of taxpayers' money. The only loose end to tie up in the whole saga is the Charity Commission's long-awaited report of its inquiry into Kids Company, which has now taken almost as long as the seven-year Chilcot inquiry into the Iraq war. So, I mean, you can make it out where you will. Um, <laughs> and former government minister Baroness Howie asked the government earlier this week to confirm when it will be published. So the saga will rumble on for a bit longer. 
the saga rumbles on. And of course, you know, Andy and Rebecca, you've been uh, around Third Sector a lot longer than Stephen and I have. So you've been following this story for considerably longer than we have as well. Do you think you're ever going to see the end of it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a note of hope in that voice there, isn't there? Uh, I think it has become something of a kind of touchstone slash bogeyman for the charity sector. And I wonder if, if that's... Like it's a kind of cautionary tale, right? And it's just going to take a while for that to fade away, whatever the charity commission says, because they've said they're not going to take regulatory action. So it's just it's just about seeing the report at this point. Um, so I think that's going to take a while to fade away, and it kind of yeah, it's going to hang over the sector. But actually, yeah, like Andy says, at some point it's going to stop being relevant, right? Yeah, I think one day it will be. I mean, it was, I mean, I can't believe that it was 2015 when a kid's company abruptly collapsed. I mean, that was a shocking moment at that time, even though I think a lot of people knew that the organisation was kind of all existing a little bit kind of hand to mouth in terms of, you know, going to government cap in hand fairly frequently and asking for donations. I think there always was a sense that maybe it was a little bit... um uh, a little bit fragile, should we say. But when it collapsed, you know, it was a significant organisation. And obviously, Camilla Batmangelich herself, she was a high profile person, had been, you know, often photographed with David Cameron around the whole big society stuff. So, you know, it had a it had a certain cachet. And for it to suddenly collapse like that was was pretty shocking. And obviously, it, lo- it left hundreds of people suddenly without a job, which was also shocking. But yeah, I think finally when the Charity Commission publishes an inquiry report, that, that feels like it will be the final stage in this long and ongoing saga. And we might we might start to see the end of it, but uh, but who knows? Yeah, I feel this point about the media frenzy that Stephen was talking about was really interesting because there is something there about it is a charity that sort of lived and died in the public glare, that it was kind of courting celebrities. It, it was courting government in a very loud way. Batman Gellage was this kind of personality and, and she played to that and that was part of her fundraising kind of shtick, which, you know, was clearly very effective when it was effective. Um, and yeah, so kind of this... and and. And it is interesting. Like when, when, when sort of people sort of say, oh, those are just salacious details for the media. And you're like, yeah, but you want to know that stuff, right? And so do I. And, and it is tricky when it's there to be like, okay, we can have the serious conversation about what does this mean for the charity sector? But also this much was spent possibly on trainers or shoes or, or, or swimming pools or whatever. And, you know, it, it is, it is interesting. It is an interesting case, partly because it's, it started out in the media and it's it's so known in the media. And of course, one of the most important precedents which was set by that judgment this year is the fact that, you know, trustees were not going to be struck off as a result of this and they weren't being held liable in that way, um, which I think was a very, you know, it's a very important point of this case. And as, as the judge said, you know, at the time, the charity sector depends on capable individuals with a range of different skills who are prepared to take on the responsibility of those trusteeship roles. And it's absolutely vital that public bodies don't have the ability to dissuade able and experienced people from wanting to become charity trustees because they feel like there is too much risk involved. So that was a very, very important moment in that judgment that, you know, we weren't going to see a precedent being set whereby trustees would be held liable and could face, you know, personal professional consequences for something like this. Yeah, and just to add to that, that was obviously um, the big worry for the sector. And that was 
I think that the judge referred to it, and it was a lot of the criticisms the defence made, was that the official receiver didn't seem to know how to apply the particular bit of law and the difference between you know a corporation, say, and a charity when looking at disqualification proceedings. So on that note, Rebecca, what's your story of the year? Uh, so my story of the year, uh, I'm going to do a quick trigger warning uh, because for, for me, I think it has been the Charter Institute of Fundraising sexual harassment story. Obviously, I'm not going to go into any detail, but if listeners need to just skip ahead a couple of minutes, feel free to do that. Not a problem. Um, so this is one of those stories that, that it kind of became what I like to think of as a shopping game story. So, you know, when you're a kid and you play uh, that game where one person says, I went to the shops and I bought a... And then you kind of keep adding stuff. You go around the circle and keep adding stuff and, and you know, you have to remember all of it. Um, I, I like It's just one of those stories where there were so many developments and things that got thrown up by it that every time I sat down to write a new piece, I had to sort of mentally tick off all of the things that had happened in kind of the preceding weeks to get us to that point. So in March, there was a social media outcry over accusations that two years ago, the Trust Institute of Fundraising had been made aware of allegations of sexual harassment perpetrated by a CIOF fellow at a CIOF event. The CIOF response to the claims on Twitter was widely criticised and then it was forced to issue an apology for that response. It launched an investigation into both the allegations themselves and the CIOF's handling of them. This coincided with the chief executive, Peter Lewis, announcing plans to step down from his role, but he and the CIOF have said this wasn't linked. So essentially, the CIOF has been criticised throughout for how it has handled the investigation and the communications around it by witnesses, survivors and CIOF members, and at one point seemed to have a kind of public disagreement with Tell Jane, the agency that it had hired to do the investigation, about statements that it had made. The investigation eventually upheld four allegations of sexual harassment against a CIOF fellow who was not named. Um, And the investigation found clear organisational and governance failings in culture and processes. Um, And this, you know, like we said at the beginning with the, the NCVO story, this is one of many stories we've had this year of something that has been whispered about. People have warned each other in WhatsApp groups about, you know, it's been known quietly it's finally getting recognised because people were brave enough to demand that it get taken seriously. Um, and I think that for me, reporting on this has been the, the kind of the the overwhelming sensation of people just going, I've had enough and you know these things are going on. We know these things are going on. Make it stop now. It has to change. Um, and I think that's been really fascinating to watch. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, if you're looking for some listening interesting listening around this i think one of the uh, best episodes that we actually recorded this year was your interview with ruby bailey pratt talking about um what she had seen being someone who's been sort of beating the drum around this in the sector for many years now um it was a really compelling interview um and is well worth a listen if you missed that uh podcast episode earlier in the year so possibly worth dropping that into the show notes as well Yes, absolutely will do. Okay, so let's move on and have a little bit of Christmas cheer. What's been everyone's fun story of the year? What has made you laugh? What has intrigued you? What has made you just go, okay. (laughs) Oh, there are so many, Rebecca. Where do we even start? Uh... (laughs) We have been some interesting ones this year. I mean, for me, I find myself drawn to the guys that spent 72 hours in the Portaloos down on the south coast, not least because it leaves me flush with gags <laughs> relating to toilets. But we don't want to go there again because we did that before and I don't want to get too, I don't want to get too bogged down by toilet jokes. But um, yeah. 
we the other thing to mention is of course Kevin Sinfield's unbelievable exploits the uh, the rugby league uh, legend who last year did seven marathons in seven days to raise money for the Motor Neurone Disease Association uh, because of his friend and former teammate Rob Burrow who has Motor Neurone Disease and he raised he's raised like five million quid because he's done another unbelievable challenge you probably saw it last month where he, he, he ran 101 miles non-stop from Leicester where he works as the rugby union Leicester Tigers uh, coach and he ran all the way to Leeds uh, in 24 hours I mean unbelievable having done some well I might have mentioned it on a previous podcast possibly I did a marathon uh, this year and I just kind of <laughs> <laughs> did I mention it I don't know that's Andy's fun story of the year. I think that's allowed. I think I think you run a marathon. You're allowed to. You're allowed bragging rights that continue indefinitely. Indeed, but uh, the one that I really wanted to mention, and sorry to mention another thing because you're only supposed to mention one, but it really was the raffle story, uh, <laughs> which was, was just quite extraordinary. So, uh, if listeners uh, didn't see this story on the Third Sector website, basically Froome Town Football Club in Somerset had joined forces with a local car dealership to set up a prize draw to win a £16,000 car and they were selling tickets priced at £5 each and the proceeds once the cost of the car had been covered would go to the club with 20% going to the community support charity Fair Froome and but unfortunately well unfortunately for the club and the charity gambling laws meant that postal entries had to be accepted for free and what happens what happened is that the competition was flagged up on the Money Saving Expert website and they started receiving postcards from around the UK wanting free entries to the draw um, as under kind of gambling laws. But then the kind of the catastrophic happened from the club's perspective when um, a box of 2001 postcards were discovered on the club's doorstep from one person. And the club said... These were all from just one man, and worse, a local Froome man. <laughs> local Froome man. Followed by a proud email from the same person detailing and documenting his actions. So basically, he'd effectively claimed £10,000 worth of free entries to the competition, which basically, I mean, it obviously is funny, but it's obviously pretty tragic as well for the draw because it totally killed the draw and it meant they couldn't do it because the chances were that he would probably win. And they basically missed out on ten thousand pounds worth of value in the uh, in the draw. So everybody who had bought an entry ticket had to be refunded, and the whole thing fell apart. So, uh, I mean, on the face of it, it was a funny story, but you have to applaud <laughs> applaud his innovation, but not his intention. And his dedication, really, to you know writing two thousand and one postcards. Maybe he lost count somewhere and accidentally did an extra one, or maybe he thought he'd throw in an extra one for luck. I'm not sure, but. Yeah, that was my kind of fun story of the year. Emily, what about you? Oh, well, I will be banging on about this painting until I die, I suspect. <laughs> but, you know, for me, it's right back to the beginning of the year and uh, the story once more of the uh, £550,000 raised for a sight loss charity following the recovery and sale of three lost paintings that were seized by the Nazis in the run-up to the Second World War. Listeners will definitely have heard this story before because I've mentioned it at least three times uh, on the podcast and we've had multiple stories about it on the website as well. But uh, yes, the Vision Foundation at the very beginning of this year were the surprise uh, beneficiaries of a windfall 
after it, it turned out that they had been named in a legacy um, by uh, a woman called Irma Lowenstein Austin. Um, she fled Vienna for London to escape Nazi persecution in the 1930s and she moved to London and when she died in 1976 she left the majority of her estate to the Greater London Fund for the Blind which was later renamed the Vision Foundation. So it was 50 years after her death that these paintings were eventually recovered and they were realised to be part of this legacy and when they were sold at auction this year they raised more than 500 £100,000 for the Vision Foundation. I love this story uh, and I think the twist in the tale, which will be a mystery, we may never find it out, is, is, is the relationship that she had with the Vision Foundation. There is no known link between Lowenstein Austin uh, and the charity and yet they have had this incredible gift from her um, after her death. And I am, you know, I think I'm really in my head about legacies at the moment because uh, a little teaser, I'm writing a story about them for the next issue of magazine. Um, but I just think this is a remarkable story which shows the the incredible uh, windfalls that you can get from this particular line of fundraising. Okay, Stephen, what is your favourite story, uh, your favourite fun story, I should say, of this year? Yeah, so mine was from March this year, which was about the cat adoption charity that stood by its patron Piers Morgan for people that maybe don't know um, Piers Morgan is the somewhat controversial broadcaster and former host of ITV's Good Morning Britain who thinks that breaking a press embargo is an exclusive um, that's not how it works Piers if you're listening but anyway <laughs> um, so it started after he uh, made some comments about the Duchess of Sussex on his ITV show, where he said he didn't believe a word after she revealed in an interview with Oprah Winfrey that she felt suicidal while pregnant with her first child. Yeah, following those comments, um, the channel received about 40,000 complaints, and a lot of the channel's charity partners, like the Mental Health Charity Mind, you know, raised a number of concerns, um, and maybe began talks about what their association with the channel was. And following all the fallout, um, you know, Piers Morgan was asked to leave. So off the back of that, I just decided to see, yeah, you know, if he was connected with any other charities, you know, what relationship he had and how many he was a patron of. Started reaching out to those charities to see whether they would continue their association with him. And after not getting much response, the Moggery cat adoption charity got back to us and I had a chat with their trustee who was called Christine Baker who was the chair and founder and we had a very interesting conversation where she explained you know when he became a patron of the charity and said you know it was before and her words became well famous which is fair enough um but she also said they'd be standing by um Morgan because um, in her words, as he hasn't stood on any kitten's heads or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, if you're concerned with the welfare of cats only, that is probably fair enough. Um, yeah, she makes a good point. <laughs> what is also funny about the story is that, yeah, the bio on the charity, you know, Morgan's little biography on the charity's website states that he doesn't even... He doesn't even own a cat himself because he's unable to. So I don't know whether that makes you suitable patron for a cat charity, but you think it'd be it'd be high up on the list. Um, 
so yeah, that was just a quite funny story that came out of nothing really, other than my annoyance with Piers Morgan. Yeah, I have to say, I was uh, I when you were explaining who Piers Morgan was, I was just like envying those hypothetical listeners who may not have heard of Piers Morgan. Like, if you haven't, don't don't ruin that for yourself. Don't look into it. It's fine. Like, yeah. I actually looked up this story on our kind of analytics page, and it is one of the most read stories of the year <laughs> on our website, this Piers Morgan charity piece. So evidently the readers thought it was a great bit of journalism as well. But my favourite part of it is at the time, I remember you calling me up to tell me that you'd found this lead and saying that you had spoken to the trustee and you said she was wallpapering her living room at the time and was just totally not expecting to hear from a journalist at all. And as somebody who, when they get caught on the hop on the phone, will say almost anything. I have no filter and no means of kind of regulating the things I'm going to say. I have to say that quote about stepping on kittens' heads, hardcore relate to that. Um, Not stepping on kittens' heads, just to be clear, but saying something that you might, in retrospect, think, oh, did I mean it quite that way? Who can say? So if any cold callers want Emily's phone number, then uh, maybe we can put that in the show notes afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I I understand that GDPR (laughs) rules are set to be revised uh, next year. So I'm going to put a request into the uh, coach secretary that my phone number under no circumstances goes to anybody for cold calling purposes. So finally, Rebecca, come and give us your give us your fun story. Uh, My fun story, again, it's one of those that a bit like the, the raffle story does kind of have a serious consequence for a charity. But I also... It's the secondhand cringe that I think I keep looking at it for. Um, so this was uh, one of Stephen's stories about um, an animal charity was told that its crucial planning application was, quote, proper whack in a council. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So this was, this was, um, um, so this was offices for Mid Kent Planning Support Team, which handles the online submissions on behalf of Swale Borough Council, and they um, were seem to be testing out some new software. And um, somebody at the council just put in kind of a they they like a joke response to a group of planning applications, including one that was for um, an animal rescue sanctuary. They had this crucial planning application in to change the use of land from agricultural to animal rescue um and they wanted like a residential unit for staff so they could stay overnight that sort of thing so it's really crucial to their charity they put in the planning application mid kent planning support team are testing out some software and just putting in dummy responses and then they accidentally publish the dummy refusal which uh, the, the charity received a refusal notice that said quote your proposal is whack and quote no mate proper whack <laughs> I think if you're going to do a public boo-boo, maybe don't, you know, don't record yourself doing it. I think that might be the lesson. I just, yeah, it's the second-hand cringe of just like, oh, I sort of see how that happened. And also, like, it does have really serious consequences. Um, And uh, yeah, the dummy decisions were removed from the site after the council was alerted to the mistake. But legal advice has subsequently found that they are legally binding and must be overturned before the correct decisions are made. And it's going to cost the council about £8,000 to fix and may take a few months. So um, I think, yeah, probably they're still waiting on that. Um, So it is one of those ones that does have serious consequences. But as a news story, you just go, oh, God. Oh, God. Um, Yeah. So that that was my... um, sort of uh, breathtaking story of the year um yeah i would just add to that that i forgot when we spoke to the local council leader 
he said because this came about because they are moving to a shared system with um, Mid Kent County, and he said that's not the first time they've had a problem like this during the move to shared services. It puts me in—I mean, public servants misspeaking in this way puts me in mind of a certain uh, former prime minister's spokesperson who maybe had a similar mistake, shall we say, and uh, which has recently been in the news. Yes, may may next year be a little quieter for us all. <laughs> Quite. <laughs> So anyway, that's been a, a, a brief run through of some of the highs and lows of 2021. Um, thank you, Steve and Andy, for joining us for that. And so now, everyone, it is time for our final good news bulletin of 2021 with the positive or the quirky news stories that we have seen in the sector. So it's fair to say that with the recent Storm Arwen and Storm Barra, the weather outside really has been frightful. But while many will be staying at home in front of the fire, there is at least one man out there in the cold and the wet battling the howling winds and rain and dressed in nothing more than a budgie smuggler. Yes, Speedo Mick is coming to the end of another epic charity walk. His five-month, 2,000-mile giving back tour has seen him marching from Stornoway in Scotland to Portsmouth via Donegal, and he is going to conclude his walk in his home city of Liverpool at the end of this week. Speedo Mick is one of the UK's most famous fundraisers, having previously walked from Liverpool to Lyon, to raise money for the causes close to his heart. Uh, and in this epic charity tour, he is looking to raise £150,000, which will be donated to causes close to his heart that include homelessness and mental health. At the time of recording, his running total currently stands at more than £142,000. And according to the Guardian newspaper, Speedo Mick has so far given out £193,000 to more than 83 small charities across the UK and Ireland, which he has made from previously fundraised income. So, Speedo Mick, I have to say, good luck. I hope you make it home in time for Christmas. I hope you're not too chilly wherever you are today. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure watching your latest charity walk. Absolutely. And just, yeah, I had not put two and two together because obviously we've spoken about Speedo Mick previously on the podcast. I had absolutely not thought about, yeah, the horrendous weather we've been having. And there's a man in Speedos out there. Apparently, he nearly got swept into the sea. Somewhere around Morecambe, he was saying big waves as he was going along the waterfront. Yeah, that's horrifying. Um, yeah, that um, he'd be okay though because the RNLI would be out there. They would indeed. They would indeed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Saving all lives at sea. Yes. remember. Yeah, no, that is amazing. Well done, Speedo Mick. Uh, good luck, and uh, yeah, hope you're home for Christmas. Um, so uh, my quick one for this week is um, a charity that donates prosthetic limbs to people in Africa is celebrating recycling its 10,000th leg. So this is Bristol-based group Legs for Africa, um, and they've been saving uh, prosthetic legs from landfill and sending parts for free to places that need them since 2014. Um, so uh, and th- these guys, these guys are amazing. So they have spoken previously at third sector fundraising conferences and stuff like that. Um, they literally started out as two guys with a van just going, ah, why don't we just fill it with prosthetic limbs? There's a need for them in Africa and we'll just drive there. We'll just drive the van from Bristol to Gambia and take limbs with us. Um, Because according to the charity, almost 5,000 prosthetic limbs go into landfill every year in the UK, which 
it's one of those astonishing things that you just never think about. And then, oh, okay, that's that's a thing that's happening. So yeah, so these guys in 2014 decided to uh, recycle them. And so they've, uh, they reckon that they've collected more than 50% of those legs that were destined for landfill each year. Um, and the team breaks them down for parts and does sort of the safety checks on each element before deeming them reusable. And then, yeah, sends them over to places where, you know, such things would be prohibitively expensive, but could make a massive difference to people's lives. Um, and they have have uh they're celebrating sending their 10,000th leg to africa um the prosthetic leg that was the 10,000th was uh, donated by nine-year-old isaac from bristol who's outgrown his um and yeah just a really really uh lovely cheerful story about again charities just going on and doing fantastic work even as sort of the rest of the world is is consumed with the pandemic Absolutely. And festive tidings to the whole team at Legs for Africa and also to Isaac for giving your very generous gift of your leg um, and passing that on. And that's us for the year. Yes, indeed. How do you feel? I mean, I've, I've had a large Bailey's coffee, so I feel pretty good right now, boss. It's yeah, going well. Uh, <laughs> proud of you. Very, very proud of you. Very proud of us. We've done a lot of recording this year. We have indeed. Um, and as has our incredibly patient and incredibly talented producer, Lindsay, who has made it on the mic this year. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Thank you to Lindsay. And Lindsay breaking the fourth wall. That actually should have been my good news story of this year. I have to say. That was one of my favourite episodes of the podcast. Actually. It was a magical um, moment. Yeah. A magical <laughs> moment. Um, and we'll be on a break now. So you will not be hearing our dulcet tones for a good month, I would say, because everybody really needs to take a rest whoever you are wherever you are and that includes us so we're going to be we're taking some time out so when are we back rebecca uh, our next episode will be on the 14th will be released on friday the 14th of january um so we look forward to uh to yes yeah, speaking to you again then um but yeah as emily says stay safe take care of yourself take a break refresh it's been another year of long-term crisis after a year of a long-term unprecedented crisis um so yeah take care of yourselves and hopefully get a good break in over the christmas period uh so wishing you all a very happy and healthy christmas with your families and your loved ones and until we speak again i am emily burt i'm rebecca cooney thank you to our guests andy ricketts and stephen delahunty and of course our producer lindsay riley at rethink audio and we will see you next year 